0: Is God out of the question, out of the equation? Or rather, is God, the God question, being reintroduced and re-emphasized today? That's the whole point of the series. And and we saw something about the first, uh, you know, the first uh, uh, program about why is there something rather than nothing? And... uh, um, now we're going to enter the second and the third, at least the second. Uh, let's see whether we come Ooh. to the third, in view of how much you interact with us. Uh, we are flexible, depends on, on where you are. Uh, I just thought we, we could be reminded of Hebrews chapter 11. Remember that verse? Uh, verse three, need to the English. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. That's very profound, isn't it? That faith is actually the... It's like the, 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 the glasses that we put on and through faith in God we see reality as it is. So, you know, we talk about world views, or a life view, or as a faith in God as, as a whole way of seeing life. I think that's a very rich understanding of, of, of faith that we need to recapture and, and, and to explore. So then, are we ready for program 2? The question on life and evolution. And then of course the question is, is, what are the key
1: issues? Hmm. So, uh, again, just a quick uh, setup uh, clip this time. I had to clip off the beginning of it, because I think the warmer the weather gets, the more my computer decides to corrupt some of its uh, video files. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> ...story, and how
2: has Darwin become the cornerstone of atheism? And we discover why some scientists remain skeptical about
1: how much Darwin really explains, while others are convinced that evolution is God's creative plan. So there's quite a range, again, this, this emphasis on a range of views, and saying, know what they're, that they're saying there, that, that there's the, the generally accepted scientific story of evolution. And that for some, that has become a major plank in an atheistic worldview. Uh, Because, uh, as Richard Dawkins says, that that at least seems to give you an answer to a a nagging, difficult question that you otherwise have of where did all of this apparent design um, come from? So Richard Dawkins even describes biology as the study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed. That says now we have Darwinian evolution to explain away that appearance. On the other hand, you so say many people are convinced of the, the generally accepted evolutionary story, but find ways of incorporating that within uh, a Christian worldview and theology. On the other hand, there are people who uh, question uh, more or less of the uh, evolutionary story uh, for uh, various different reasons uh, some again mentioning of, of young earth creationist position and actually the documentary also gives a fair amount of time uh, to the overlapping uh, but broader position of uh, intelligent design theory and it's actually uh, interesting to note and I'll just reference I'm, I'm giving a talk later on in this uh, and this week in the Apologist uh, track uh, about the waning of of naturalism and noting the number of uh, naturalistic scientists and philosophers of science today who are beginning to question some elements of uh, the evolutionary story, in particular whether the the Darwinian uh, mutation and natural selection uh, process as an explanation for the diversity of life is an adequate, a sufficient explanation Uh, and uh, we're living in interesting times uh, with regard to that part of the the story, uh, at least, being questioned more and more by secular uh, scientists today. So again, it it just puts out on the table there that there is a wide range of views and that actually um, different philosophies try and incorporate that mainstream science within themselves, but also there are some... Uh, and indeed, I would say some from, from both sides, as it were, who question the mainstream science. So there's a lot of different ways of approaching the subject and opening up the conversation. Last.
0: Yeah, so let's uh, have the, the various answers yeah. then. Uh, The atheist response uh, is that by chance there happened to be an environment with the presentation that somehow led to the emergence of life. That is, we don't know, or we were just lucky. Uh, So that's the whole understanding that either we have to admit our ignorance about it, or again the concept of being the winners of a cosmic lottery. Secondly, random variation and natural selection working over large periods of time are assumed to be capable of explaining the diversity of life. So how do we explain the diversity, the rich diversity of life? Well, by postulating that we need a lot of time and random processes, that these are enough, sufficient to explain the rich variation of life. And then thirdly, we were lucky. Or there must be a lot of planets with varying conditions, and going back to the, you know, the whole uh, multiverse approach or something equivalent to that. So this is the atheistic response. Let's look at the theist response. Well, the first why is life. God has intentions and purposes related to His valuing of the things that life exhibits. That relates to beauty, Relationships, moral values. So we're talking about something objectively true. And God being uh, uh, the origin and the guarantee for this. Guaranteeing this. Secondly, God produces diversity. Of course, He does this through secondary causes. So it's not that He causes each and every event to happen in the natural world, of course there are secondary causes at operation. But then of course a secondary issue is whether God only uses secondary causes in producing the diversity of life, which really relates to what we uh, talked about during the, the, the final part of last, uh, last session. So the question is, uh, is God limited to using or limiting himself to using secondary courses. And then, thirdly, there is not only cosmic fine tuning, but local fine tuning. That is, that is, there are um, uh, fine tuning not just on the grand scale, but you can isolate fine tuning as mechanisms or as patterns or as uh, you know rich tapestry, as it were, in definite places where you can observe it. That's the claim, at least. Yes? Would the DNA code, would that be an example of local fine Would the DNA code, would that be an example of <coughs> yes. 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 local fine-tuning? Mm-hmm. So, so uh, <clears throat> the question is, would the DNA code be an example of, of uh, 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 such local fine-tuning? Yes, where you, when you can focus on this specific area is an area where it seems to be a number of factors that are fine-tuned existing with each other. You know, sometimes I, well, I want you know to, to, to understand fine-tuning as a concept. I love the, the illustration that it's like a, you know a, a, a what do you call a crystal or a glass uh, what do you call ball or. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is uh, uh, fixed in the middle, uh, in in thin air almost, in the middle of, of a room, strapped to to each corner of the room with with uh, you know fastens. And if you cut one of these uh, straps, the crystal ball falls down. So it has each and every strap has to be in place in order for the crystal ball to, to exist there without. The, getting crushed. And that I think is an interesting analogy to, to what fine-tuning is. It means that each and every component that is you know, p- playing a part in this whole picture is actually uh, has to be there in order for the whole uh, operation to function, for the mechanism to function, for the whole process to be there. So you see again, we see a stark contrast between the atheist response and the thesis response. Should we just briefly go back to the to to once again? To the three questions. We have this of course at at the, the outline. But it's important to these are the questions that then we have to you know both worldviews and any other worldview has to answer. And again it's important that for us to help people to understand what the key issues are. You see the point uh, one of our tasks is to help people to understand what the key issues are. And to draw them into conversation, to draw them into exploring it. And sometimes people you know, need time to explore and need time to, to digest. And we shouldn't push always push that. We need to give people space for reflection. I think that's one of the good things about these programs, excellent things, it actually stimulates reflection, it stimulates conversation, it stimulates public debate, it stimulates to explore these issues. Pete.
1: Okay.
0: not looking <laughs> for laws. <laughs> Ever since I was Christian gentlemen on science, we're looking for
1: laws <laughs> of nature. He is investigating empirically. The laws that God has established to govern creation. It's creation by law, not creation by miracle, which Darwin has in his sights. By September
2: 1835, HMS Beagle had reached the Galapagos Islands, where an important observation would lead to Darwin's fuller understanding of the laws of nature. Here, it was not so much the exotic creatures that drew Darwin's attention. Rather, it was the apparently undramatic differences in the beaks of mockingbirds and finches from different islands that began to fascinate him. Darwin wondered how these variations could be explained.
0: Well, this is the in this collection. This bird is a ground fish, and its beak is adapted for cracking very, really, very hard seeds.
2: So the beak is very deep and very broad. But these individuals were better at doing certain tasks, for example reaching into uh, the crevices and picking a uh, um, uh, flower pollen. This bird is a cactus fetch, so it has a much more narrow uh, and much more shallow beak. Uh, even small differences in beak morphology are important for the survival. It was through such detailed observations of difference and the importance of those differences for survival Darwin's theory of evolution emerged. This is a vision of laws of nature established by God, not God directly intervening, not miracles in any sense, but God having established rules for his creation on earth, just as he has established rules for the functioning
1: of his heavens. Hmm. That's quite an interesting uh, take on. Uh, what Darwin was ab- about doing from uh, one of his uh, biographers there being interviewed, um, seeing Darwin as following in the footsteps of of people like Newton and so on in looking for laws of nature, but in this case laws of nature uh, that govern uh, the biological uh, world um, and uh, darwin 's uh, certainly had uh, questions and doubts and problems with uh, Christianity and with the belief in God as his life went on. Um, but as biographers these days recognise that actually had more to do uh, with his experience of suffering and uh, losing uh, children uh, in, in his life early, early on and so on. And that the question of, of, of suffering uh, was one that weighed very heavily with him but it's not that he saw himself a contradiction between uh, discovering laws of nature that explained biological diversity and thinking that there was a God who had instituted that process of law that he thought he had discovered. Now, of course, Darwin goes from these observations of variation in, say, the size of, of uh, finch beaks, as uh, you get dry seasons and wet seasons, and uh, and so on, uh, and makes an extrapolation to form his theory. He extrapolates and says, maybe this observed process uh, of variation, given enough time, assuming there are no, in principle, barriers that would come up to the extrapolation that we're making. Uh, that we could explain all of biological diversity by reference to, to secondary causes which you could see as instituted by my God and that is of course a way that many theists, many Christians today uh, view the theory but you see how it, it opens up because it's not referencing God directly it opens up the possibility of the person who doesn't believe in God thinking, aha, this gives us an answer to the, the question that we otherwise had of given I don't think there's a God to explain all this diversity and it sure looks like you know, the product of design I have a sort of explanatory blank in my world view I can, I, can I can now say thank you very much Darwin I'm going to take your theory which you know, may be consistent with a God but that means it's also consistent with a not a God view of, of things, and therefore, uh, it becomes an important plank, an explanatory plank in an atheistic worldview. But that in itself doesn't mean that it is necessarily, by its own nature, a sort of anti-theistic uh, view, as it were. And so that's sort of the program covering the way in which, again, you have a scientific theory and different, different uh, theological or atheological views of the world appropriating or fitting themselves uh, around. That theory. I've got a slide here making what I think is the important point uh, that modern you know, evolutionary neo Darwinian theory is uh, what some have called the grand evolutionary story, is actually uh, a hypothesis made up of a number of different suggestions, a number of different ideas about reality, um, some of which go hand in hand but some of which don't necessarily go hand in hand. And you will find today uh, a range of people who believe or disbelieve in different elements of this grand evolutionary story, uh, including you know, non- non-believing atheist, agnostic, scientists, thinkers, question certain elements of the traditional uh, story. So, you might start with what's called the ancient Earth hypothesis because, as Darwin said, I observe a certain amount of change can happen in a limited amount of time. In order to explain this huge amount of variety, I need to, you need to have a long amount of time. So, the theory seems to go hand in hand with giving up, thinking there is a long period of time for those natural forces to work within. The progress hypothesis is is really sort of the observation that over time life seems to have changed from relatively, and I emphasise relatively, simple forms of life to a greater diversity of more complicated forms of life. The common ancestry hypothesis is the idea that just as I am related to my parents and they're related to their parents, um, that every existing... Life form is uh, related by common ancestry to previous different life forms, that they've changed over time, from being one life form to the production of a new life forms, new life forms related back to a common ancestor but that's not quite the same thing as the the idea of universal common ancestry which is the idea that life originated at only one place and from that one beginning of life all the diversity is related by common ancestry so that every existent form of life every form of life that there has been goes back to a single common ancestor Uh, and there are a number of atheistic uh, philosophers and, and scientists who question that idea uh, today they believe in common ancestry but not universal common ancestry they may say that uh, diff- uh, some different basic forms of life and even Darwin when he was putting forward the, the theory said that life goes back to, w- to one or, or a few different basic forms of life uh, and that still seems to be a somewhat open question today the really revolutionary thing that, that Darwin brings to the table is what some have called the, the blind watchmaker, to quote Richard Dawkins, the blind watchmaker hypothesis. This is a, uh, this is a suggestion of, an, of, a, of a material engine or naturalistic explanation for the diversity of commonly ancestral related life over time. That um, this macro-evolutionary Story of diversity over time is driven by the mechanism observed within, say, the the change of beak finches, uh, finch beaks, and so on, but extrapolated over large amounts of time. But that uh, extrapolation is uh, secure, and then that process is sufficient to explain much greater uh, diversity than we ever. Uh, see uh, on the lab bench, uh, as it were. And finally, the naturalistic origins hypothesis, which strictly speaking is not part of evolutionary theory. to talk about evolution of life, you need to have some kind of life capable of undergoing evolution, that is capable of reproduction, with variation, so that it can be affected by natural selection to evolve so when you're talking about well, how do you get life in the first place you're not strictly speaking talking about something that comes under evolutionary theory even though scientists will talk about it under say the rubric of of chemical evolution the origin of life studies Um, but uh, the question of how do you get something capable of being made more complex by a process of variation and natural selection is not one that you can answer by pointing to A process of variation and natural (laughs) Uh, selection—that would be begging. uh, You've already, you know, you've got to get step one there before you can then enter into the rest of the story. And it's perfectly possible to accept some of these hypotheses whilst rejecting other ones. But you can see some are implied by others, but some you could you could doubt whilst accepting uh, others. So, as I said, there are some, you know, some atheist scientists who doubt universal common ancestry but accept everything else on the list it would be possible to reject the naturalistic origins hypothesis and think that the origin of life was a miracle whilst accepting everything else on the list, list. or to accept you no know, these points but doubt these points and so on and so that the, the conversation when you when you point out that, you see why it is much more complicated than the question, Do you believe in evolution or not? <laughs> it's like, Well, which bit of it? <laughs> uh, that's uh, the that's that's sort of Have you stopped beating your wife yet question, you know, <laughs> as, a, as a lawyer might put it. Um, so, um, this is Alvin Plantinga, a Christian philosopher from the States, his personal take. He says he thinks there's excellent evidence for an ancient earth, and given the strength of this evidence, one would need powerful evidence on the other side from scriptural considerations in order to hold sensibly that the earth is young. And he doubts that such scriptural evidence exists. Of course, other Christians think that it does. Plantinga says there's less evidence, but still good evidence, in the fossil record for the progress thesis. The claim that there were bacteria before fish, fish before reptiles, reptiles before mammals, and so on. when he comes to the naturalistic origins thesis, he says, it seems to me to be, for the most part, mere arrogant bluster. (laughs) I believe it's vastly less probable on our present evidence than it's denial. So there you see someone thinking through the issue, and again, from that Christian viewpoint, saying I can be open about What's the, the science saying? I balance that against my other sources of knowledge. What, how do I interpret what Scripture's saying? Um, I try and put my sources of knowledge together in the best way that I, that I can, given the present evidence. And that leads me to doubt some elements of the, the grand evolutionary story, but to accept others. And so the question is more complicated than, do I accept evolution or not? Last things to do. Yeah, um, a story
0: from, from a group of students our college in Norway, we went to UK for the study where uh, We uh, enjoy meeting high hiking with people, of course, uh, of various kinds, including Jay back there. Uh, and uh, uh, we have the privilege of having John as one of his speakers, and I remember he brought the questions our college students. Professor, what do you think about evolution? And I mean, John is always very wise and, and insightful. He's his response and he answered well, my friend, it depends what you mean by the word. There are at least five meanings to the word evolution. I agree with three, I'm not certain about the fourth, and I reject the fifth. What did you think about? <laughs> that was about his Which illustrates, you know, what we're talking about here That If people bring evolution in, we really need to define what we mean. Mm. The extent of it, the level of it, the presupposition. I think it's, you know, that's one important insight we need to take from this. Uh, uh, The other insight is that the absolute antithesis is between naturalistic evolution and Christian faith. Not between evolution as such. Because that may be so many different things that it's difficult really to make an accurate judgment in, in the final, without qualifying the terms. And uh, another quote from, from our friend John Lennos here, he's, I remember he saying once that uh, an atheist has to conclude with evolution. Now from an athe- atheistic point of view, there is a necessity, you have to use evolution as a mechanism in order to explain things. Whereas we as Christians, we are free to also <coughs> explore evolution. I think that's one of the book because it again it emphasizes that for us as Christians, there is a freedom, intellectual freedom in pursuing this. That's also why I would like to re-emphasize what I said at the
1: beginning, that we must never fall in
0: the trap to start with evolution, you know, as an antithesis to Christian faith in the first place. We must always keep it on a much more basic, fundamental level about the question of is there a God, or isn't there a God? The question of theism, or atheism, theism, or pantheism. And it really comes down to the fundamental question of which worldview is the most credible one. And again, to remind you of, of the flow of this, this TV series, of this DVD series, the question is the whole time, in light of the evidence from mainstream science, Is the God question ruled out, or is it even reintroduced and re-emphasized today? Hmm. So let's continue with with, uh, 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 this topic. I
3: encountered Darwin's idea of natural selection, and it hit me right off. Oh, good, that explains many things that need explaining. Uh, Don't need God to explain those. Absolutely no doubt
4: that evolution is a fact that has taken place over the lifetime of the earth. The best explanation that we've got for how it is is Darwinian natural selection. If you can account for evolution
2: without the notion of God, then God is unnecessary. But other scientists interpret the same evidence rather differently. (laughs) The idea that Darwin left God with nothing to do is simply false. It's false in principle. You can't deduce atheism from Darwinism. What does Darwinism mean? that there is a mechanism of natural selection. Is that in itself an argument that there is no creator who designed this mechanism? You cannot use evolution to account for its own existence. Showing that something has a natural explanation ultimately does not take God out of the picture. And the reason for that is God, if He exists, is the author of
1: all things natural. God is responsible for sustaining every moment and every
2: particle of existence in the universe. Evolution was the mechanism. It was not the insight into why, it was the insight into how, but it was God's insight, and we're now discovering it. And should that not increase our awe for the Creator, as opposed to being a threat to God?
1: We'll move on in a little bit to looking at some of the views that uh, pursue questioning some of the mainstream science. Um, But just to to take out one or two interesting points from there, notice when Peter Atkins in the the clip said, you know, I absolutely said that evolution has happened. And then he said, And our best explanation as to how it has happened is Darwin's mechanism of natural selection. So there you see, knowing about the the distinction between um, the ancient earth, the progress, the common ancestry hypotheses, and Darwin's mechanism of evolution by natural selection uh, starts paying dividends because... Peter Atkins is not saying Darwin's mechanism, as the explanation, is absolutely certain. He's saying he's absolutely certain that things have gone from simple to complex over a long period of time, and they're related by common ancestry. But how did that come about? It's a separate, separate question. What drove the process? Do we know? That's a separate question. He, thinks, he says Darwin's explanation is, is the best one that we've come up with. But there you see how knowing that those uh, distinctions pay dividends. The whole
4: evolution, if you like, the culminating we like to think in us uh, is purely random. It's not guided. And that's quite a strong thing. We are very complex beings. And we have emerged without any divine guidance. There's one very dogmatic form of
2: neo Darwinism which says that actually we've got all the explanations we
1: need, we can show that evolution occurred, we can show how it occurred, we've got it all taken. I'm afraid that's just um, animals, really, and
2: almost certainly false. How do we know that the mutations, for example, that were requisite for the production of complex life weren't mutations that were caused by a transcendent creator? So the... Inference that, or or the assertion
1: that this is random seems to me to be a philosophical assertion, not a scientific assertion. So, there again, you start seeing another distinction that could be drawn between saying, when you're talking about random variations that natural selection works upon, what do you mean by it depends on what you mean by random. Um, perfectly possible to say with Bill Craig there, maybe some or all of those mutations were miraculously caused or intended somehow, guided by God. To say that they weren't wouldn't be so much a scientific assertion as a philosophical assertion that naturalism was true. Um, So there's a difference between an evolutionary theory that says purely metaphysically naturalistic forces
0: full stop
1: are at work here and a theory that says there are natural forces at work here and they were created by God that God lets the natural forces do all of the work and a theory that says God created a whole lot of natural forces and at least maybe some, or a lot of the time, or all the time, guided certain of those natural forces? Um, Did he guide them in a way that we could scientifically detect, like talking about we can detect a healing miracle scientifically, as we were earlier? Well, the question as to yes or no there starts you getting in towards the difference between... one form of theistic evolution and intelligent design theory because intelligent design theory claims that there's scientific evidence of intelligent causation that you can scientifically detect within the world but there's actually quite a sort of range of theistic evolution itself it's not just one possible view there are, there are those who have a view or almost you know, it's almost the atheistic view but it's not atheistic because they say God created those processes he upholds those processes it's not even a deistic view those processes wouldn't exist if God didn't have them there, God intended them and maybe he's guiding them in a way that's scientifically undetectable that's you know, another thing that you could say is, is this intelligent input if it's there detectable then you're into uh, the realm of, of intelligent design theory so there's, again, a, 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 a breadth to the range of views that are being presented um, that is not often mentioned within the public uh, conversation, I think. Richard, a yeah?
3: A point about that I wouldn't be afraid to make in front of any of my physics, co- any of my physics colleagues, that God could be the guy evolution on a molecular level, hmm. generation to generation. Without violating the laws of nature, it's like if if you're going to flip a coin. If I'm going to have a coin flip five hundred times, and I decide the three hundred seventeenth flip is going to be heads, Um, as long as I I keep the overall Mm -hmm. and don't forget God. There's no guarantee God can't operate under not knowing probabilities is our status. Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily God's status. So He can do it if. The statistics right, he can still choose every single yeah. step, and, and it would not even violate natural law.
1: Yeah, so, so but, but it would violate, I think, a coming principle that will be proven today about
3: the amount of functional information which is still being defined and worked with, about the amount of functional information that can be produced by natural I think that's going to be the case.
1: Yeah. yeah. So, so the suggestion that it's perfectly possible for God to kind of um, hide his action within the fact that we have a statistical knowledge of reality at that level. Uh, and so long as God acts in a way that keeps the statistics how we would expect them to be, on average, it's it's very difficult for us to either rule in or rule out that any particular event is particularly chosen or directed by God, as it were. And, and this is the thing, see, intelligent design theory says, says, we can't ever rule out design, but there are some cases where we can rule it in. And my, my favourite analogy for this is um, think of the leaves in a park. They're just blown randomly by the wind. Uh, during autumn, or the fall, as our American cousins uh, would say. The leaves are just randomly distributed around the park by natural forces, processes. Um, Well, what if an artist were to come along at night and gather up all of the leaves in the park and then go around the park very carefully and cunningly placing the leaves so that they mimicked a random distribution of leaves? You come along in the morning, you look at the park, you'd have absolutely no reason from looking at the distribution of leaves in the park for suspecting, what is in fact the truth, that each and every leaf had been placed where it is deliberately. On the other hand, suppose you come to the park in the morning and all the leaves in the park have been arranged to spell out the words, good morning, I've made you a coffee. then you'd find it very difficult to say, wow, doesn't the wind do amazing things at random sometimes? You know, know, there are arrangements of of the world that that seem to make it obvious that there is intelligence at work, but intelligence can work in ways that are not obvious. So you you can't rule out God from these kind of scientific descriptions, but the that still raises the, the further interesting question. Can science ever rule in, if not God, at least, intelligence which philosophically one might think, theologically one might think, is best understood as being being God? And that's where you then get into the, the design discussion. The
3: kind of empty idea as a meaningful a, a approach, except that I believe that there, there are theorems in the making that, will, that could prove...
4: Mm.
3: Meaning that some causal, some some causation other than unguided nature mm-hmm. is necessary to produce this particular molecular structure. That's proof. That's proof. Mm-hmm. But it, it's not anywhere near finished.
1: yet. Mm-hmm. so Yeah. So just a comment here, really, from Dr. Carhart again, that he thinks there are, there is interesting work going on, particularly in the mathematics of information theory, uh, that could provide. Uh, in principle proofs about what natural forces can and cannot produce um, but that the work isn't finalised it's sort of interesting stuff on the way uh, to sort of keep an, an eye on God, Yeah, the, some the sort of,
3: basic yeah.
1: of yeah. uh, the place to go on to keep, an, to keep an eye on this work would be uh, the uh, Evolutionary Informatics Lab uh, run by William Densky and co-authors who've been publishing a number of peer-reviewed journal uh, articles in this area which are very interesting.
0: Jay, I know, I was going to say
3: much the same thing. It's
2: all the fact right. that it all fits to design suggests that there is a designer. Yeah. Getting back to the, the earlier the idea of mutation, mm. the, the finches that they use,
1: is that a mutation or is that an adaptation? So, uh, the question about you sort of like saying they're looking at beak finches
2: to suggest that somehow it's getting better or that this is evolution.
1: Right, that it's, that it's changing, yeah. Street
2: adaptation of one bird or another in another place as we do issue this as well. That's observable. Yes, yeah,
1: yeah. So, again, Darwin went from an observable mechanism within nature, but in order to provide a, a cover-all law explanation of biological variety, extrapolates that and says maybe this process, given enough time can produce all of this variety and actually if you read the origin of species, the interesting thing that he does is he flips who has the the onus of proof who has the balance of proof here, he says let's assume that nature is capable of producing all this variety unless we have a specific evidence that it can't Rather than saying, actually, the onus of proof is on me to show that this mechanism can be extrapolated that far. Uh, and that you might think that it's such a big extrapolation that the, the onus of proof was on him uh, to show not only the process can do this little bit of tinkering, you know, changing the sizes of beak, beak beaks over seasons and so on, um, but that it is capable of producing birds from things that aren't birds. That's my uh,
4: question. It yeah, still
1: it yeah. It uh, that's right. And that, that's where the extrapolation comes in. And, and extrapolation is often very successful in science, and it's clearly a very interesting theory to put forward uh, and a possibility to explore, uh, and the question that everyone you know, uh, wrestles with is whether that extrapolation uh, is sound uh, or not, whether we've discovered things um that undermine that extrapolation or whether it is indeed a sufficient uh, explanation. Yeah. So another comment that uh. the changes in the builds was within the general
0: variation already
1: existing within the population. So it didn't require Right, yes. Okay. a uh, the uh, comment from David Swift that the, the variations uh, in the, the, the beaks of the finches. Um, the population of finches had a variety of beak sizes. What changed was the prevalence of certain beak sizes within the overall population. Um, so, under certain environmental conditions, you know, bigger, stouter beaks or whatever came to predominate the population. But actually, as well as the, as the environment changed back again, that reversed uh, that process. Um, so that the, the, again the, the crucial question becomes okay you have a material process that's capable of of spreading a variation in a population given that you've already got the information for that variation there but that still leaves you with the question of where does the information for those variations come from is that process able to be extrapolated over, over time to explain the origin of the information for constructing beaks of various sizes, or birds, or mammals, or vertebrates, or and so on.
0: I think it's worth, you know, uh, just going down to the basic line here, that uh, from an atheistic point of view, what well, is dependent on evolution as a mechanism? Mm. From a Christian point of view, we are free to explore it. Mm. And I think that's that's an immensely important thing to emphasize because it takes off the heat, takes the heat out of so much of the discussion. Because so many Christians are concerned about the whole area, but we need to be free to show intellectual liberty and to show that as a Christian there is actually enormous freedom in exploring this. And uh, if I may mention it, there is really very helpful material, serious. Uh, done, I think it's called Defenders Class uh, William Lane Craig a uh, Sunday School class uh, fairly advanced stuff for being a Sunday School but nonetheless
1: Adult Sunday School yes, yes. <laughs> yeah.
0: and, and it's, uh, it's called the series you go to reasonablefaith.org which is William Craig's website there is a category called Defenders Class and there is a very recent series I think it's 22 episodes on creation and evolution Covering eight different views on Genesis 1, for example. And uh, he says himself, he's rather agnostic in the area, as he has said publicly so many times, Uh, but it's very helpful in in drawing out uh, uh, some of the more recent writings and so on, both on the area of Genesis 1 and in the area of of scientific theory. Uh, Reasonablefaith.org, which is Bill Craig's website. Uh, and under that, the defenders class, which is the Sunday school, uh, good American tradition with adult Sunday school, right? And and uh, mm. uh, and that's uh, then the series is called Creation and Evolution. Mm. And there's all, there are also transcripts of it. It's not just audio files, but it's transcripts. So I do re- recommend it to, to listen if you want to. I think it's 20 25 minutes each episode, so it's not impossible to cover it sometime if you will, mm. would like to. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, did you continue? Now? So I think that the program gets to a point of saying if the generally accepted neo-darwinian position were correct then it would be it would be consistent with both theism and atheism. It would be consistent with both views in a sense. Indeed neo-darwinism can be interpreted philosophically in a manner consistent with guided theistic evolution as well. So if neo-Darwinism were correct then it would at most at most you might think it undercuts certain kinds of design arguments from biology but by no means even all kinds of design arguments from biology let alone the local fine-tuning of a planet capable of sustaining life or the cosmic fine-tuning of a universe capable of containing life. But not all were persuaded. Professor John Maynard remains doubtful about how adequately evolution explains all the diversity of life. I find the biologists convincing on the level that this mechanism produces the kind of variations
2: that Darwin saw, what might be called microevolution. I find it more controversial when it's claimed that this uh, variation principle. Natural selection produces the major transitions. Evolution is believed to work through for a form of trial and error, changes in DNA building over billions of years. Somehow they have to combine to create advantages. Now you can now, for the first time in the last 10 to 15 years, quantify how improbable those changes actually are. Intelligent design scientists have tried to calculate how many random trials might be necessary to produce a definite biological success. A money-bogglingly large number, one in a trillion, 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 trillion or so sequences that are possible would perform a specified function natural mutations hit a target that is that small. You've got to have a whole lot of things go right before natural selection can even operate. And the things that have to go right are so incredibly improbable that is really not a plausible explanation to rely on natural selection and random mutation to produce the big changes.
1: Uh, here's an interesting quote from a very recent um, British publication by a well-known a British atheist philosopher called Mary Midgley in her book, Are You an Illusion? She says this, the idea of natural selection which is usually called into account for this vast creative surge is already looking increasingly inadequate to explain evolution. Natural selection is only a filter and filters do not provide the taste of the coffee that pours through them similarly the range of evolutionary alternatives between which selection takes place has to be there already in matter you're appealing to matter to have the resources to produce the variations that can be selected how it, how that variation comes to be present there is the real mystery about creation fascinating to see that from uh, an atheist British philosopher or in their recent book, What Darwin Got Wrong. Uh, atheist philosopher of mind and an atheist uh, biologist, uh, Jerry Fodor and Massimo piattelli palmarini if I've pronounced that correctly, uh, say this, Darwin's theory of natural selection is fatally flawed. We don't know what the mechanism of evolution is. As far as we can make out, Nobody knows exactly how phenotypes, that is, different kinds of creature, basically, evolve. And they're very clear up front in the, the preface of their book. They're, they're a little bit nervous about publishing this. And indeed, they, they got heavily criticised by some atheists for doing so. Because they say, look, we want to make it clear at the outset that we are atheists. We are materialists. We are committed to having some sort of materialistic, non design non-god, non-supernatural explanation for the variety of life. And we accept that evolution in that sense of progress over time in terms of complexity of creatures, common ancestry we accept all that but the thing that we're questioning is the sufficiency of our current material explanations of that variety coming coming about. Um, You know Now, yes, these kind of voices are in the minority. But uh, it is interesting uh, to note that I think there are a growing minority of even atheistic thinkers, philosophers, and and scientists questioning that element of the grand evolutionary story uh, that we looked at. So it's not simply that certain people with a, a theistic bias because they understand Genesis in a certain way or whatever are so blinded by their religious <laughs> impulses that they are determined to question science and what science says. It is uh, again a more uh, nuanced and complicated thing than that. Dr.
2: Stephen Meyer is one of a number of scientists who argue that the very complexity of living things shows direct evidence of intelligent design. One of the things that theory of intelligent design stresses that many theistic evolutionists don't. Is that there are features of the natural world that can lead you to the rational or logical conclusion that, that the designing was active? All biologists accept yeah, like, that life looks as though it design designed for a purpose. And Richard Dawkins has his famous statement where he says, biology is a study of complicated things that give the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. We don't think that that appearance is an illusion, we think it's real, and you can tell by analyzing the, the scientific evidence carefully. What is intelligent
0: design looking at? It's looking at patterns in nature
1: best explained as
0: a product of intelligence. One thing that will point to intelligence is the inadequacy
1: of my computer to run all of its uh, computer files. Uh, nonetheless, um, so um, we mentioned about uh, the origin of life and so on. And, and again, uh, Mary Midgley in her book uh, mentions increasing difficulties about matters like the origin of life. Um, so it is interesting, days for certain elements of that uh, story being questioned. Um, the human genome
2: can be thought of as an instruction book. It's a book written in a funny language, the language of DNA, which has just four letters in its alphabet, A, C, G, and T. And the particular order of those letters are what can determine what the genetic information says. So if the DNA spells out Cat, C, A, T, that means one thing. If it's spelled out TAT, just about opposite TAC, it means something else. Your DNA is almost identical to mine, but it's not exactly identical. About 0.1% of our DNA bases are different. And since we have around a billion bases, that means that there are a million differences between you and me. <laughs>
1: Another very interesting atheist publication of recent years was Thomas Nagel's book, Mind and Cosmos. Uh, He's famous particularly within the philosophy of mind uh, in America but uh, notice the subtitle of his book. This is uh, published by Oxford University Press, Mind and Cosmos, Why the Materialist Neo-Darwinian Conception of Nature is Almost Certainly False, which is a Surprising word to find at the end of that sentence from an atheist uh, philosopher. And he says that the dominant scientific consensus, recognising that it is the dominant consensus, faces problems of probability that I believe are not taken seriously enough, both with respect to the evolution of life forms through accidental mutation and natural selection, and with respect to the formation from dead matter of physical systems capable of such evolution. The more we learn about the intricacy of the genetic code and its control of the chemical processes of life, the harder those problems seem to be. So he's saying it's one of those gaps that seems to be opening, like John Lennox talks about. The coming into existence of the genetic code seems particularly resistant to being revealed as probable given physical law alone. A tremendous amount of engineering
2: and information... Action that has to go on. To get even one cell to exist is absolutely astonishing. It's like looking at the whole universe
0: in miniature, and that's just one cell. You could shuffle chemicals, and you could fill the universe with some
2: kind of primordial soup, and shuffle it for the whole age of the universe, and still you're not going to get life. Why? Because life has to do with a very special sort of thing information. We know that natural processes can transmit information but there's no evidence that they can originate it. When we find information in the cell, this is not something that Darwinian evolution can explain but we do have an explanation that is known to produce information and that that explanation is intelligence.
1: This is an issue that actually when Anthony flew Uh, probably the most famous British atheist of the 20th century, uh, next to A.J. Eyre. Um, When Anthony Flew, later on in life, decided that the incoming evidence of contemporary science, uh, he needed to allow that evidence to push him over from a belief in atheism to a belief in a philosophical theism. He didn't convert to Christianity, uh, he didn't believe in, re- in revelation he didn't believe in life after death he was very uh, certain on these things but he said the more that was discovered about the richness and inherent intelligence of life the less it seemed likely that a chemical soup could magically generate the genetic code the difference between life and non-life it became apparent to me was, was ontological it was about the nature of, of the kind of arrangement particularly what Leonard for there saying about It's information. It's a particular kind of complexity. It's not just that it's complex, but it's this kind of complexity of information uh, and not just chemical. The best confirmation of this radical gulf is Richard Dawkins' comical effort to argue in The God Delusion that the origin of life can be attributed to a lucky chance. If that's the best argument you've got, then the game is over. So Anthony Flew, and I had to follow the evidence where it led. Um, So you see Uh, The power of this kind of design argument, if it's something that's going to move someone who's made his name and career as a defender of atheism, (laughs) uh, over to at least belief in some kind of a creator.
2: Uh. What comes out at the end is a text, the text of the longest word we've ever discovered, the human genome, 3.5 billion letters long. Now, whatever processes are involved in that. The moment we see text with meaning, and it's a code remember we call it that, we infer upwards to intelligence instantly. We're seeing in nature things that we know only arise from intelligent activity. Not from any natural process we know, but things that do arise we know from intelligent activity, like digital code.
1: So, if we'd looked at the fine-tuning of the universe, you'd see how this argument parallels the way that you can structure an argument for the fine-tuning of the universe, which, again, uh, we were talking about, you know, would DNA be an example of local fine-tuning? And you're saying, yes, really, this kind of informational complexity or specified complexity. Um, I think my couple of illustrations, I love, you need concrete illustrations to to bring these kind of things home. uh, you're playing uh, the English game of Scrabble, where you make words out of the tiles with different letters on them. Uh, when you draw those letters out from the Scrabble bag sight unseen, so you have a random drawing of, of, of letters, you can draw a long random gobbledygook word that means nothing, and very easily avoid explaining that arrangement of letters in terms of invoking intelligence. Of course, you just oh, random luck, chance. You can even occasionally draw out a short word that. Conforms to the independently known the independently specified rules of the grammar of a particular language you might draw out the tiles G-O-D huh, I've drawn out the word God from my Scrabble bag but you can still avoid rationally having to invoke design or intelligence to explain it you say oh it's just lucky occasionally you will draw out a specified but not particularly complex arrangement but if you were like in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, where they get the Scrabble tiles and they draw out the Scrabble tiles at random and they start spelling out you know, the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything is... Well, in that situation, you'd think someone was pulling a magic trick on you. It's a set-up job. There's some, you know, somehow, however it's implemented, there's design going on. Bill Craig says, you know, that the cowboy is playing um, poker in Dodge City. And all of the other cowboys notice that every time Slim Jim is the cowboy who deals the cards, he ends up winning the poker game with a straight flush. And this keeps happening. And eventually, they get a little bit suspicious of Slim Jim. And they pull their six-shooters on him and demand that he explain himself because they reckon he's a cheating varmint. And Slim Jim says, Look, any hand of cards that I get dealt is just as unlikely, just as complicated as any other hand of cards. It's one arrangement of n number of cards out of all of the possible arrangements of n number of cards length. So any hand of cards is just as unlikely as any other. I don't know what you're getting your knickers in a twist for. I'm just lucky. And Bill Craig says, Those those cowboys are not going to take that explanation lying down and slim jim is going to end up with a belly full of lead <laughs> uh, because it's the coincidence of highly complex pattern
0: with an
1: independently known or specifiable pattern like that's the pattern you need to win the game every time or when you put a card in a hole of the ward machine and punch in four digits and i get money out of it was i lucky or is the better explanation that I knew the four digits that are the four digits that specify my bank account? Of course, any, any four-digit number I enter in there is highly complex. So that's like the fine-tuning of the universe, the highly complex laws that exist happen to be the ones that allow life to exist, whereas most sets wouldn't. And again, similarly in DNA, things exhibiting this kind of specified complexity in our experience, probably designed and life capable of evolving before we even get to evolution. Life depends upon the specified complexity of functional information embedded in genetic and epigenetic biological structures. So that points positively. It's not not merely that it's a a lacuna of explanation that naturalists are, uh, are now openly admitting that they have problems with explaining the origin of life, that it's a gap that's opening It's not just that there's a lack of a a non-design explanation, but that there's a a positive indicator of design. That is, in those clips Stephen Meyer points out, as he points out in uh, his recent book, uh, Darwin's Doubt, uses the same scientific methodology as Charles Darwin used um, in The Origin of Species, which he took from Lyell of explaining things in terms of best explanation arguments explaining data in terms of what in our experience do we know has the causal power to produce this effect Uh, and so he argues I use use the same scientific methodology as Darwin uh, to point to the opposite conclusion uh, which is a, a canny way of proceeding uh, so that's a sort of summary on, on the intelligent design element that the, the program covers yeah specified
4: complexity and
1: functional information difference ok so this is a question what's the difference between functional information and specified uh, complexity uh, in this one, really they're, they're, they're synonymous in this context because the uh, the, 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 the function that is produced um, is uh, determined by the nature of the, the, the system that's receiving the code. The arrangement of the amino acids uh, code for producing certain arrangements of proteins that will fold in a certain way because they're arranged in that order and the folding of the proteins will create certain machines that do certain things. So um, the uh, there is a, a system that that independently determines the uh, the meaning of the arrangement. Uh, it's not so. The analogy Bill Dembski uses is he says what you, what you need to avoid doing is is this, um, you know, getting getting a bow and arrow, blindfolding myself, letting loose at the wall, walking up to the wall with a paint pot. Drawing a target around the arrow <laughs> where it happened to hit, and then saying, "Oh, there you go! See, I'm brilliant at archery." Uh, but if you have the the target is there independent of the, you don't just read it off the event and say, "Yes, that's the target." When you have the independent pattern and it's hit at high in probability then that does indicate that you're good at archery, or that there was design involved. So it's the difference between sort of just uh, an ad hoc making up of the, the relevant pattern by reading it off the event and saying there you go uh, and having uh, something that, that, that um, independently uh, nails down the, the target that you've hit. I
4: understand that the case with the DNA information because it's causes and, effect and <coughs> context and mm. in the system itself. What about the centre project? Right. They, yeah. know, they're with big scanners to get mm. the information and
1: if they get the radio signal with mm. certain mm. repetition in mm. that context you don't have know what is the I mean strictly
4: logical I mean still you can understand that this is specified complexity mm. even though you don't know what function it has so so it must be something more we can't say what the specified complexity is without knowing its function if you know.
1: Right, so the, the, the question is in the context of the, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, which uses a similar sort of design hunting yeah. pattern. We're looking for a kind of pattern that would indicate uh, in, intelligence. Um, and the question of whether you need to know the function of the intelligence, of the, of the, the pattern, to recognize that it is specified complexity. Uh, I, I think it's, it's like recognizing... Um, that something is a language carved into a stone, even though you don't know the language yet, you haven't in, you haven't interpreted the language. Um, so the Rosetta Stone uh, kind of thing. So, uh, but the the kind of complexity that you see on something like the Rosetta Stone, or you might, as an archaeologist, kind of dig up, that is, it's neither um, simple repetition. Um, Famously, in Search for Extraterrestrials, when the first, first astronomer discovered a pulsar star, a rotating star, that had a, a repetitious beep, beep, beep on the signal, thought she might have discovered extraterrestrials. But because it was a, a, a regular pattern, it's easier to say, well, maybe there's some as yet undiscovered natural law, natural process that regularly produces this thing. On the other hand, you can have complete randomness, like the the drawing out of the, the scrabble letters in a long gobbledygook. Complete randomness. It's not regular. It's not every time you have the letter A, you have to have the letter T, because of some bonding force between the tiles. And every time you have the letter T, you have to have the letter A. If those kind of laws were there then all you'd ever be able to spell out with Scrabble tiles would be, having picked A, would be A, T, A, T, A, T, A, T, A. And you couldn't encode any information in it. It wouldn't work as an information carrier. So just repetition or or, or law-like processes can't uh, process information or be informational, but neither is complete randomness, just the white noise that you might pick up on a radio as well. So looking for something like aliens from space who might you know, be, as they do in the, the movie Contact, the information or the, the series of prime numbers uh, in the book. Yeah,
3: that's, that's the example exactly yeah. you want to do. Yeah. They actually look for that. They look they look for beams or pulses Yeah, uh, that, that correspond in groups that correspond to the prime numbers
1: in mm. sequence on the presumption that, that, that mathematics is a universal language because it describes everything. So, you know, they'll, they'll know about numbers two, even one, if they one, speak a different one, language. Three, two
3: is okay, and then three, but four is not okay, you know, and then the next prime number, the next prime number. Because that's, that's an abstract uh, understanding of the way numbers work, yeah. which only intelligence yeah. possesses.
1: So receiving a radio signal with a, a, a beeps that represented the prime numbers in them uh, would be an indicator of design. And again, that, that's ne- neither a law like, repetitious, simple structure nor complete randomness, but it is is—it's a, a sort of type of complexity between those. It's complex, unlike repetition, but it's not complete randomness. We're looking,
3: looking for a mapping onto our sense of consciousness, human
1: consciousness.
0: Mm.
3: Actually, we probably
1: miss other forms. Of yeah. Over there right. We
3: wouldn't know
1: what to look for. But yeah. We know the prime numbers are important. Yeah. From- <laughs> so, as as I, as I said before, uh, Rich is pointing out. You know, we, we there might be lots of things that we miss because we don't understand. And so you can't rule out intelligence, but there are, it's at least possible that there are occasions that you could rule it in. And if you if you could, in principle, rule it in in doing SETI there's nothing to say in principle at least that you couldn't rule it in in doing biology or cosmology
0: and I think it's worth at this point to to uh, sort of what what where are we right now you know in this discussion we're talking about information and the role that plays the whole question of, of of the God issue and I think we've referred to uh, I think you did refer to it previously uh, when when John Lennox talks about the difference between the bad gaps and the good gaps. Uh, you know, we've heard about the God of the gaps that we, you know, people often atheists excuse accuse Christians of appealing to God uh, in where we don't know, you know, where we are ignorant. Which means that the more scientific knowledge we get, the less places there for God. Mm. Gaps, and of course that is illegitimate, legitimate. because the point then is that the whole universe as such is a creation, and not just one individual element. But then the question is: Is there not some? Exa- do we have not just the bad gaps, but do we have good gaps? That is, gaps that that indicates, shows information that actually. Uh, are clear examples of that. We we have now touched on two two examples. One which is, it seems rather forceful, and that's the, the genetic code, the DNA, which seems to be a place where there is a clear good gap, and it's actually increasing and increasing in terms of the explanatory power of it when you apply a Christian worldview to that. And then, of course, is the question of extraterrestrial intelligence, whether that also is a good idea or not, but that is not as clear an indicator as the other one, but it's under exploration, it seems to me.
3: Uh, your point
0: about freedom is new to me, and
3: uh, I think it's so crucial. The, the Christian has enormous freedom to investigate the natural world. I mean, I've not deciding whether evolution is right. I don't see a theological problem, because every... Natural events, and act of God, already. So I don't, I don't really care whether he did it that way or not. No, that's right. The question is, if someone comes up with a new mechanism, evolution has no effective mechanism, and for a physicist, that's a killer. You don't have a mechanism, you don't have a theory. In my book, okay. So, so I'm, I'm waiting. But, but then they say, well, retroviral insertions, or Hawks genes, or you know this kind of stuff. Well, okay, let's see. Show sure that that's
0: a mechanism? So, so, uh, so uh, Richard Carr here is underlining the the, uh, the intellectual freedom we have as Christians to explore the world. Yeah. Because there is, uh, there is a fundamental, uh, you know, um, credibility uh, to the Christian worldview in terms of undergirding the whole scientific enterprise. But the problem is that each of those, as
3: they're coming online, each of them keeps turning up empty.
0: Of, of the possible explanations. Yeah, yeah. so this yeah. gap is not closing. But but we are free mm-hmm. to let people try to demonstrate mm-hmm. it without, mm-hmm. without getting anxious. Yeah. So, yeah. Good point, yes. So there is something there to say about the freedom. I think that is something to bring into discussions with people. Uh, mm-hmm. To be a Christian is actually to, be, to have a real intellectual freedom to explore this. The whole area. And, and uh, I think this creates a wonderful opportunity for conversations with our friends who are not Christians. What do you say? Do you as Christians freedom to listen? can't kind be of serious. You know, the kind of that's a surprise to many, many people. I think because they have sort of um, they, they read our understanding of the world as almost a, as a deterministic understanding where God is invoked. At each and every place where we don't want to be concerned about knowledge, it seems.
1: So, yes, please Let's move on. Okay, just a a little bit about that third uh, point of the third of the second program uh, about local uh, fine tuning, Uh, or in terms of the why is there even an environment, a habitat where life can thrive? It's one thing to have a universe compatible with the existence of life. But it's another thing to have somewhere within that universe uh, that can be a home uh, for life. But the emergence
2: of life on Earth was dependent upon other crucial factors. Earth, for some reason, found itself at a distance from the star, in this case the sun, that was such that it allowed for liquid water to exist on its surface because you see if the planet is too close then it's too hot and you don't have liquid water if the planet is too far then it's too cold and
1: everything freezes <laughs> It's what um, Paul Davis famously uh, wrote a book called The Goldilocks Enigma uh, The Goldilocks <coughs> Enigma Why is Earth just right uh, for life? And you may have heard in the news and you often get inflated accounts in the, in the popular press uh, about the current search for uh, extraterrestrial planets and the, the ongoing search for uh, uh, even uh, Earth-like uh, planets. Uh, and each new, um, vaguely Earth-like planet that is discover- discovered is then reported in the newspapers as, you know, we'll all be going on holiday to Alpha Centauri by the end of the decade, kind of thing. Um, but they get really excited if they they find uh, a planet that might be solid. That. Possibly is in the right distance from its star so that it could have liquid water on it if there is the right kind of atmosphere there, which we don't know. You know and then that gets reported as new Earth discovered. You know, Pack your bags. Now, uh, what it seems to me is that thus far we've discovered uh, a lot of extraterrestrial planets, uh, all of which are not Earth-like. Uh, so does that mean that the, the statistics I'm I going to this with a mathematician Does that mean the statistics on the likelihood of other Earth-like planets Goes up because we've shown at least that there, it's possible for there to be other planets Other solar systems and so on Or does it mean going down because our, our sample size of non-Earth-like planets keeps increasing um, That's an interesting <laughs> conundrum to go into uh, So, again, I I really recommend this uh, book to you by Bradley Monton, uh, Seeking God in Science. An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. And he says this, uh, towards the end of the book, he says, Intelligent design needs to be taken more seriously than a lot of its opponents are willing to do. The arguments do have some force. They make me less certain of my atheism than I would have been had I not heard the arguments. I think there is some evidence for an intelligent designer and, in fact, I think there is some evidence that the intelligent designer is God. Because, of course, those are separable questions. Now, modern remains an atheist. He thinks he has reasons for atheism that sufficiently overbalance the evidence from design, that there is design and that the best explanation of that is theistic. Um, But here is an atheist philosopher of science willing to say... You know, look guys, there's, there's something to this and it does make me less certain of my atheism than I would otherwise be. Uh, and that's really uh, interesting uh, to see.
0: And, and maybe it's worth, you know, commenting that this is a very, you know, it's a very honest statement. Mm. Uh, very impressive. Someone saying, well, I'm really attracted towards a the theistic worldview, but still... I'm not willing to accept the whole package. Though there are some arguments that are persuasive, some evidence that seems to be
1: drawing me in that direction. And I, it's really you know, something to be, he is really to be credited yeah, yeah. for that. And I think it also reflects reflect on the fact that as a Christian, we have the, uh, the possibility of saying the, the reverse kind of position. Yes of not having to think that the Christian worldview has everything sewn up in a nice neat package and all always you know, perfect and, and fine, but saying, on balance, I think Christianity has the best, most plausible view. But there are some difficulties, doubts that I have, problems, arguments against Christianity that I think have some force, but not enough to convince me that Christianity is wrong. Uh, And and that is a perfectly intellectually sustainable legitimate uh, position. Uh, So it's not having to pretend, as as it were, uh, that we think, you know, all of the evidence, all of the arguments, that there are no problems with with, with the Christian view. Uh, Picking a a worldview, picking a spirituality is inherently a sort of um, comparative exercise. Because I said at the beginning, just as science is a fallible project and theology is a fallible human project and philosophy is a fallible human project uh, to try and understand reality and we're, we're all of us trying to help one another understand reality the best that we, that we can.
0: Yeah, and it occurs to me that it may be fruitful for us to ask, you know, before uh, we may have time to go into some of the third well, mm-hmm. but it has really been a lot of material so far so, so it's, it's worth asking what are we to make of all this material? You know what is the implications of it? That's worth exploring. And for welcome to those of you who uh, came a bit later, it's not easy to get here all So right now uh, we are exploring. You know, there is a, at the end of um, at the end of, of the binder. There's uh, an explanation or a presentation of this series we've been talking about uh, in this brief forum. It's called the God Question Series. That is a three-program series. uh, And uh, and, uh, it talks about three issues. The cosmos, uh, life and evolution, and then mind and consciousness. And the whole overall question is, in light of mainstream science, of the findings, evidence from mainstream science, is God less likely or more likely? Is the God question out of the question? Or is, is God really more on the agenda than ever uh, in terms of the scientific endeavor? Mm. And I just thought it might be helpful to, for us to uh, uh, to think, you know, where, where does this fit in? Um, I would like just for a moment to go to Acts 17. You know, Paul in Athens, you are all familiar with the passage where Paul is encountering a context which is very much non-Jewish, very much, you know, it's a, it's a Gentile, a Greek context. And I think it's uh, Professor N.T. Wright that talks about Paul is like a ch- master chess player, where, you know, the master chess player walks around from table to table you see that in our pictures? And, and plays with one opponent there, one opponent there, one opponent there. And this is really what we encounter in Acts seventeen. Paul is playing with the Stoic there, with the in there, with the religious syncretist there, with and so on and so on. And when you look at the overall structure of Paul's argument, I think there's quite it's really legitimate to 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 use Paul's overall argument as as a way of understanding where all of the things we're talking about in this free forum seminar fits into the that structure. Because Paul starts with points of contact. That's Paul's starting point in Acts seventeen uh, uh, in Athens. Paul actually uh, takes their longing for a god evident in, in the altar to an unknown god paul talks about their religiosity talks about their search for god in various ways whether it's in the altar or in in so many other ways for example evident through their poets and so on and again you know the whole question about science and god is actually about the search for meaning the search for truth the search for purpose the search for for something more than we can just see. So there is very much uh, here, especially when you talk to people, uh, you know, friends, family, uh, you know, people you get in touch with in various uh, arenas and, and, and contexts. A lot of people are concerned about, at least the question of meaning, is there, you know, why is there something rather than nothing, really, basically. Why, 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 what is truth? Do, can we really find that? Do we find that in, where do we find it? And you claim to be a Christian, is that something to, to, to be said? You know, in, what can be said in favor of that? And then Paul has a three-stage argument and ends up with points of tension. This series of programs really only touch on the first argument in Paul's uh, in Paul's structure, because what we could call natural theology, Paul really claims. He says that the Jewish Christian, the the Judeo-Christian view of God, is much more credible than the Stoic perspective, the Epicurean perspective, or the popular Athenian perspective. It explains the universe. It explains who we are as humans. It explains life. It explains uh, the meaning and purpose of life. So it's a whole and very rich natural theology (coughs) argument. That is, the Christian natural theology explains the world in a much better way than any other natural theology, any other worldview, as we would call it. And of course, that's the whole point of the programs, in showing there are different takes, different perspectives on reality. But then Paul goes on to what could be called the ultimate authority argument. If There is an author of life, he has authority over life. So, you know, if there is someone who has created everything, that person has ultimate authority. Like someone who is an author of a book has authority over that. You know, we know the concept of copyright in our culture, uh, cultures today, and it's the same kind of idea. So the whole idea of, of the judgment of God goes, is... Legitimate because God is who He is. Because God is the creator and sustainer of everything, He has the right to be a judge. Um, God's holiness goes back to being the one and only, the one who has created everything, uh, who is the sustainer. So, if God is the creator of all, the author of life, who has authority over life. And then thirdly, Jesus and the resurrection. This God, who is the creator and sustainer of the whole world, the whole universe, the one who has shown himself to be someone with ultimate authority, he is not an unknown God. He has shown his name and his face in Jesus Christ. And he has made shown the credibility of that through the resurrection of Jesus. So it's moving towards that. And I think the interesting thing is that it's a it's a structure here where this is a bridge building. Activity of you know, building bridges to where people are asking: Where are the longings? Where are the deep seated search for meaning, for purpose, for truth? And then saying that you know the, the 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 glasses that we offer, the worldview that we offer, actually provides a perspective on the world that is you and that is again the whole point of this series of programs, to bring Christian voices, credible voices, like John and uh, John Lennox and, and William Lemgrain to the table to introduce a Christian perspective in the context of pluralism, as we said. Hmm. And then moving on to that, if God is the author of life, he has ultimate authority, he's no longer an unknown God, he has shown himself ultimate way in Jesus Christ. Uh, And the interesting thing is you can move back and forth here. As Christians, we often start here. But if (coughs) there is no problem with sin and the holiness of God, people don't see the need for Jesus. And if people don't see the reality of God as creator, it's very difficult to see the reality of sin. So I think... The flow of thought here is very forceful, and it's, I think it's, it's helpful to, to, to reflect on that the whole series is really in this, I mean, in, on this level. Whereas in order to reflect on the whole Christian, the whole biblical worldview, mm. we need to move on mm. to present uh, the whole picture. Does this make sense and I think it's it's helpful to have this kind of thinking, uh, you know, um, present uh, with us because we often misunderstand different ways of communicating them. And the there are different arenas and different you know different uh, uh, purposes in in, in different contexts and settings. Sometimes it's actually legitimate just to talk about this relating to science for example that's the place for that whereas of course if we only did this in church we would certainly fail you know, to teach a fuller, a fuller Christian understanding of the world would you like to comment on
1: yes. this? yeah thought, uh, bringing the fact that the, the point of contact here is very much what the programme is doing, as well as looking at the, yes. the natural theology, of, of course, by giving that that broad pluralistic. What does modern science kind of say? So, for those interested in the the sciences and the science religion discussion, uh, the programme and the, the study series and so on is a great sort of point of contact into um, raising the discussion about natural theology. And then whether we, I don't know if you have time to see it or not, but but. The, certainly by the time you're into program three where it's talking about mind and consciousness and so on there does begin to be elements talking about for example understanding of religious experience or near death experiences and things that raise spiritual questions and you start getting explicit interviews with Christians talking about their religious experiences and so on that, that at least raise into questions of a more specific Christian Jesus kind of nature
0: so any reflections, comments before? We still have time for the third program, uh, you know, but we still to leave some more opportunities. Can I be cheeky? I just wonder whether, if we get us another column down the
2: side, whether actually one of the things that play in Act 17 is, is Paul and his transformed and transforming life as well. That, you know, we look at the, the books folks are listening to the material, but I'm also looking at Paul
4: and saying, what difference is it making me in your life, you know? Is it real for you? What is, you know, is God really at work in your life
2: and so I guess when whenever we're doing the programmes if mm-hmm. you're using it in different contexts with church or school in terms of understanding that we ourselves are ambassadors for Christ and the the yeah. that there is between us and that and it's not the we to be completely perfect, but you know,
0: we are redeemed and, and actually transforming us. And so not always just thinking it's material actually God will use us in our yeah. So, yeah. so, so the the, the common reflection, or maybe even question, is: Shouldn't we also think about in terms of the transformation and Paul's transform transform life as a testimony to the truth of the Christian worldview, yeah. and not just uh, the argumentative structure? Yeah. Um, and, and certainly, uh, you're quite right. Yeah. that the yeah. overall message of the two-volume work, Luke and, and the Book of Acts, is definitely that it's. Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit uh, uh, plays a very important role in communicating through the deeds of Jesus first and then the disciples. if you think of Acts 1, for example, and the role of of, 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 uh, the work of the Holy Spirit through the disciples, it's very very evident, I think. So that's a good, very important point. When you think of the specific context in the book of of Acts chapter 17 in in Athens, uh, When we read the speech by Paul in in Acts 17 from verses 22 to 31, that is actually a follow-up speech related to his original presentation in the marketplace. Many people read it as if it is a missionary primary speech, it's not. It's a follow-up speech where he's invited as a herald of a foreign god, as they put it, before the Areopagus Council, who was... Uh, the appropriate body for licensing people as heroes of foreign gods into uh, the Athenian marketplace. The Athenian Agora, you know, the, 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 the square, the, the marketplace. There. So you can say that what was at stake was his credibility as a messenger of a foreign god. You know, in the specific historical context. Mm-hmm. Of course, when Luke writes about this, he has a specific intention. He wants to talk about how the Gospel and the Gospel messenger encounters different contexts and worldviews. Whether it's the Roman state, Paul as a Roman citizen, a number of times in the book of Acts, that's the issue. Uh, is it lawful or is it not lawful? Uh, another issue is, of course, the, the, the synagogue context, where a number of times the question is, is Jesus really Messiah? Uh, and then you have in Acts 17 the, 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 the non-Greek context of Athens as illustrated in, in chapter 14, uh, which is a very fascinating context because then it's you know, moving out of the synagogue into the open place. But you also have other contexts like yeah, uh, 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 Paul encountering and the others encountering uh, the occultists in places like Ephesus and other places. So I think it's time after another, it's Paul and the other messengers, the apostles, the first disciples, their credibility and the credibility of their message over against questions, objections, and worldly alternatives. And there, of course, in that context, their transformed life plays a integral role. We cannot have one without the other. But I
1: think it's, it's, it's a very rich return. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, I mean, of course, at the end of that Acts 17 speech, Paul gets on to, and God has appointed a judge and given proof of this by raising this man from the dead, gets on to Jesus. And although, of course, we, we have in that speech Luke's summary of Paul's speech, not a not plausible thing, we have a word-for-word word, uh, uh, re- uh, reproduction of the speech, I mean, it's, it's hardly plausible to think that, that Paul could have got on to the message of the resurrected Jesus without mentioning his own personal religious experience of having met the risen Christ on the road to Damascus, and, and that having turned his life around, it's just that of course Luke gives us that information in several other passages in some of the Roman context, when he was before Governor Felix and, and so on, um, but we know that, that that message there already, but, but I'm sure that, that Paul would have brought that in uh, to his conversation with them.
0: If you want to explore it further, you can go to my blog, last where there is a special section on Act 17, which was the topic of my PhD. I've so, done some explorations. Um, so I think I think we have time. Mm-hmm. If there are no other questions, right now we have time to look at a brief glimpse of the third. If that is okay with you, the third chapter, uh, the third. Uh, program as well, that gives you a more holistic picture of the whole Mm -hmm. at least touch some so let's do that
1: Okay, assuming my clips uh, will work for us here we go
0: how billions of neurons in the human brain
2: produce our sense of being conscious is one of the great unknowns in science
4: we all know we are conscious, but we actually don't know what consciousness is And that's called the hard problem of
2: consciousness. We don't have a basic idea of what a thought is. I cannot tell you molecularly or chemically what a thought is. We do not know what a memory is. I know a little bit about the molecules that are involved. I know that neurons are involved and some chemicals are involved. But I cannot tell you physically what a memory is.
0: understand fairly well how brain
2: cells work and how they are linked together. And we know that they are linked through a bit of electricity and some chemical processes. Yet we don't know how from the activity of these cells we have this amazing phenomenon of thought, awareness, feelings, emotions, everything that makes us unique as individuals.
4: Yeah,
0: so then three key questions again about uh, this third topic. Um, are human beings more than matter, more than their brains and bodies. Um, that's a really important question. No. How we answer that is so crucial. And it has to do with the whole history of reduction. Do we reduce hum- human beings to, to less than what it is or not? Secondly, can matter be mind? And can materialism and naturalism explain mind? So we heard something about what is consciousness, what is mind? Mm. Well it's not easy if I kinda of give you an explanation, heard about what a thought is, was a clip in the clip here. It's very difficult. It's very it's very uh, it's like a moving target it seems. But there's a lot of research going on in that area. Thirdly, how credible it is to attribute attribute, transformed behavior that relates to to your comment about about the Apostles. How credible is it to attribute transformed behavior to a relationship with God? Is God-consciousness manifest in so many different ways delusional and wishful thinking? Or is it rational evidence for the existence of the Creator? And how do uh, the atheists respond to that? Well, let's look at that. First of all, humans are nothing but complex arrangements of matter with a particular history. And we have the subjective value we confer for ourselves. That is, there is no objectivity to our, our, our dignity, our, our human value and dignity. It's something that we assign to ourselves very important statement about the atheistic understanding. Secondly, evolution is the most obvious source to consider. <laughs> it is believed to produce increasingly complex forms. Mind is or is a product of the matter we call brain. So actually there is not a difference between you know the brain, the molecules, the atoms, you know, the process of the brain and mind and consciousness on the other So we can explain consciousness and thought completely, sufficiently by reference to the mechanical, the automatic the, the physical biological and so on, chemical processes thirdly behavioral transformation attributed to God is delusional and the religious placebo you know what a placebo is? you know, <coughs> something when you think there is something in it like medicine, but it's not. It's just you think there is a content to it. Behavioral ch- changes can be explained through a combination of natural and social sciences. So if there only is enough knowledge of us as human beings, scientific, whether it's in terms of natural scientific understanding or social scientific understanding, you know, biology, physics, chemistry, uh, chemistry and so on, on the one hand, on the other hand, sociology, anthropology, etc. The combination of these gives us enough explanation. We don't need anything more than that to explain What what a human is. The theist response, well, let's look at that. Most Christians and most people are dualists and perceive the mind to be a distinct entity, something different from the brain that, at least under certain conditions, can exist without the brain, confer, near-death experiences, as well as theological beliefs about the afterlife. Theists identify that human minds have been made for interaction with the Creator. There is a minority of theists who think a bit differently. They are called physicalists, but I don't think we should focus on that right now. Secondly, the majority view among scholars of the mind body problem is that there is no explanation about how matter could produce mind. Many theists argue that the existence nature and nature of mind provide compelling evidence of divine purpose. An example of such an argument would be, for uh, example, C.S. Lewis's argument from rationality. You know, that, that uh, the fact that we as humans argue and reason. It's a very compelling evidence for the existence of someone who gave us that ability. And then thirdly, transformed behavior can be evidence, can be evidence that interaction with the Divine Spirit can have a transformational impact. For example, arguments from religious scholars. <coughs> Again, do you see the stark contrast between atheistic? and it really comes down to the question of who is a human being um, and do we if we have everything uh, <coughs> if we explain you know all the available explanations in natural categories you know by natural causes is that sufficient to explain who a human being? Or is there always something more than that? And that, of course, is the Christian position. There's always something more. We cannot just reduce humanity to just something material, just something naturalistic. Hmm. We have five minutes left. And more four, maybe. Uh, and uh, would you like to add something, uh,
1: I... Th- <coughs> uh. Let's just uh, perhaps I have a couple of interesting quotes again to uh, to add in. Uh, Michael Ruth, who I quoted earlier, um, excuse the language, but he says, "I find consciousness one hell of a challenge. I honestly think that we've not solved the mind-body problem, and that genuinely is the dominant uh, view comes across in this program. The dominant view within the field. Um, there are those who are committed to a naturalistic worldview. Will say, well, you know, we're working on it, but we do not have." a plausible naturalistic explanation. They would tend to more take the position that they also think there are reasons for saying that a sort of uh, position that says there's some supernatural element to people is implausible, and therefore we have to go on in a search for a naturalistic explanation. But it's not at all the case that uh, those in the know are saying we have these plausible materialistic explanations of mind and therefore we can dispense with all this supernatural mumbo-jumbo. Uh, it's, again, to do with the underlying, the deeper philosophical commitments. Uh, and um, I, would, I would add that I think there are actually very compelling arguments uh, from mind uh, towards God. There are even, of course, uh, those atheist philosophers like Thomas Nagel, who we've mentioned, who will say conscious subjects and their mental lives are uh, inescapable components of reality not describable by the physical sciences, um, so there are uh, there 's a difference between being an atheist and being a, a complete naturalist. Um, there are those atheists who say that there seems to be more than a person, but why would we need to go to a theistic worldview to understand that to explain that? We just recognize that that is the case, uh, and then they 'd be into are there good arguments or not from? that extra physical reality about people to some need to bring in God to explain it or not. So again, the, the variety of views that can be discussed. Thank you Pete. Uh, maybe it's time then to to draw it
0: all together. Just to remind you of this uh, paper, which gives you a very neat summary of the programs and some contact information as well if you would like to explore this further. It really is a fantastic resource. Uh, and um, power, yeah. So, so uh, uh, not with the clips, I think. No. Uh, uh, uh,
1: I think they would like you to go and buy the DVD series. Yeah. Uh, let's see. So,
0: but I think uh, we have worked on this in preparation for this pre-form when Ian Morris, who's the producer of the series, to get it quite, you know. Uh, one spot in terms of what are the issues there, and, and uh, so, so this is it like a, it's like a gift package, I would say. Uh, and this is our side, uh, the study guide, So remember, it's a broadcast series, and it's a series one school version and one church version. And it's very encouraging what's happening now in terms of the broadcast version, it's being distributed increasing number of countries. Uh, the last country I heard of was South Africa, uh, which will broadcast about South African cross South African corporation, the major corporation economy, which is very encouraging. Um, I know Thailand has bought it. Uh, and uh, uh, it really shows that uh, this is an issue that is global. And as Christians we need to help people to engage with these issues in a way that is Sufficient that respects other people. We shouldn't force our opinions, our perspective, arguments on anyone, else, but invite people to consider it, and always bring the Christian perspective, the alongside other perspectives around it. So we hope this has been a, a, a way of, you know, a time of engaging, a time of opening up the issues, a time of, of, of showing you where the resources are. So do take good care of this. And uh, um, feel free to correspond to any of us who are on the mention here, uh, in terms of getting more information. Yes, I think that's time is up. Probably a uh, message from you anyone else
2: towards the end? No? Okay? Let say thank you.